0: From Bloomberg Law, you're listening to Uncommon Law. I'm Adam Allington. A day after Derek Chauvin was found guilty of murdering George Floyd, lawmakers in both parties said they were cautiously optimistic that a trial would provide new momentum toward overcoming the political hurdles that have stymied efforts at police reform in Washington. In a speech before a joint session of Congress on Wednesday, President Biden formally called on lawmakers to resurrect a bill known as the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act by the end of May.
1: My fellow Americans, we have to come together to rebuild trust between law enforcement and the people they serve, to root out systemic racism in our criminal justice system, and to enact police reform, in George Floyd's name, that passed the House already. I know Republicans have their own ideas and are engaged in a very productive discussions with Democrats in the Senate. We need to work together to find a consensus. But let's get it done next month, by the first anniversary of George Floyd's death.
0: The bill, which was co-written by Vice President Harris when she was still a senator, is an expansive set of measures designed to curb the use of excessive force by police. Among other things, it would create national standards for police training, as well as ending qualified immunity for law enforcement officers. Qualified immunity is a rule created by the Supreme Court in the 1980s, which holds that public officials can't be sued for violating constitutional rights unless their actions transgress a clearly established law. In the year following the death of George Floyd, qualified immunity has evolved from what was once a relatively obscure legal doctrine, known only to civil rights lawyers and legal scholars to what has now become a popular talking point on TV talk shows and newspapers across the country. With me today to discuss the prospects for reforming qualified immunity is Alex Reinert. He's a professor of law at the Cardozo School of Law in New York City. He also published a recent study analyzing more than 4,000 appellate court decisions from 2004 to 2015, which show that qualified immunity played a major role in denying relief for plaintiffs. Professor Reiner, thanks for taking the time to talk to me.
1: Sure. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: My first question for you, Alex, is whether you feel the guilty verdict against Derek Chauvin in the murder of George Floyd changes the discussion around qualified immunity going forward.
1: I don't think the guilty verdict changes the discussion. I think the case, of course, has had an impact on the discussion, but I don't think the guilty verdict on its own changes the discussion about the impact of qualified immunity and its importance.
0: Sure. Obviously, the Chauvin case was a criminal trial and qualified immunity only pertains to civil cases. But I think the fundamental issue that connects the two is whether officers who violate a plaintiff's constitutional rights will be held accountable. In your writing and public statements, you've been very critical of qualified immunity as a legal doctrine. Can you just go through your key points in that respect? Sure. I mean, I'll say what qualified immunity does
1: fundamentally is it says that even when an officer violates an individual's constitutional rights, that individual cannot recover compensation unless it was clear to a reasonable officer. Uh, that the uh, conduct would have violated the Constitution. Now, what that means in practice is that um, courts ask for very similar factual scenarios presented in prior case law, um, almost always appellate case law or Supreme Court case law, that would have put the officer on notice that their conduct violated the Constitution. And what it does um, as a consequence is, for people who've been victimized, it means they are deprived of compensation. It uh, reduces deterrence um, in terms of uh, that we expect civil liability to deter unconstitutional conduct, but qualified immunity interferes with that. It makes it more difficult for courts to develop the law because of the qualified immunity doctrine. And fundamentally, the fundamental criticism is that it's based on a fiction. That is, the policy arguments for qualified immunity are fictional. Um, it's not needed. It doesn't, it's not necessary for protecting officers from personal liability. Um, and there's a lot of data to suggest that. And so those are, I think, the criticisms in a nutshell.
0: As you know, the family of George Floyd received a massive $27 million settlement for violations of Floyd's civil rights. But I've heard some opinions from legal scholars that say the rules defining qualified immunity are so specific and all-encompassing that if the city of Minneapolis had chose to contest that lawsuit, there's a pretty good chance the courts would have tossed it out. Do you think that was a real possibility?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's hard to know what would happen. I think there's some um, support for the position that some constitutional violations are so obvious that you don't need a prior case to tell us that it's unconstitutional. So certainly uh, there would have been arguments raised around qualified immunity um, if a Section 1983 action were brought. Whether they would have been successful is, is hard to predict, but I will say there are lots of examples of high-profile cases in which unarmed people were killed by the police officers in which qualified immunity has been granted.
0: A bipartisan group of lawmakers is meeting on Thursday to discuss negotiations on police reform legislation. One of the potential compromise offerings came from Republican Tim Scott of South Carolina, who is suggesting that shifting civil liability from individual officers to police departments. So would that be a step in the right direction? Or do you think qualified immunity should be scrapped completely?
1: I think qualified immunity should be scrapped completely. But to me, that is a separate question from whether or not to have respondent superior or entity liability liability. Um, for the municipalities or states that employ the officers who violate the Constitution. And to some degree, I think it's a false choice to suggest that we're losing accountability unless we can ensure that an individual officer will be a defendant and qualified immunity will not be permitted. And I say that because even if we got rid of qualified immunity— and maintained the idea that individual officers should be defendants. Nothing will stop municipalities and states from identifying the officers in those cases as they routinely do already. And um, I don't know that I think it necessarily is the only way to achieve accountability uh, is by holding those officers accountable in individual civil suits. There are consequences, there should be consequences, and hopefully there will be consequences when someone sues because an officer violated the Constitution, even if the officer is not uh, an individual defendant. Um, And one hopes that um, municipalities, if they are formally on the hook, or states are formally on the hook, that they will start to think about ways that they can reduce the incidence of those kinds of unconstitutional uh, uh, injuries. And um, so I, I think, I, I don't think we should assume that just because the individual defendant is not in the case, that there can't be accountability in other ways. And more importantly, or, or as importantly, that there can't be room for deterring uh, future unconstitutional conduct.
0: At this point, we're going to take just a quick break before we resume our conversation with Alex Reinert.
2: If knowledge is power, the Bloomberg Terminal is your power up. Connecting you to real-time financial data, market moving news, powerful analytics, and an influential network of financial decision makers around the world. Share ideas, negotiate trades, and gain the insight you need to make more informed decisions. See how the terminal can take your workflow to the next level at bloomberg.com slash professional.
0: Of course, the key feature of the modern qualified immunity doctrine, the, quote, clearly established law standard, was created by the Supreme Court in 1982 in a case called Harlow versus Fitzgerald. In the absence of any action from Congress, others have pointed out that the Supreme Court itself could Recalibrate or reverse its position on qualified immunity. Do you see any potential of that happening?
1: Yeah, I am not particularly optimistic about the court changing of course, very much unqualified immunity. So I think some of the recent cases are extraordinary cases um, and also not really in the context of policing. Um, so I think that what we've seen is uh, in, the, in the most common encounters that give rise to unconstitutional interactions, um, the police-citizen encounters, I think the court has shown no hesitancy about sticking to a very strong qualified immunity doctrine. Um, I think in some other contexts, the court has shown a little bit more openness to seeing space for past, to, to get past qualified immunity. Um, but I, I don't see the court changing course. I mean, you no know, Justice Thomas and a lot of people have focused on a, a concurrence that Justice Thomas wrote in the Abbasi case. He said he was open to reconsidering it. But since that time, He's signed on to some qualified immunity decisions, and um, I just don't see evidence that there are five justices who are going to really take a sharp turn away from where the the court has gone with qualified immunity.
0: And still another route for change. Several states, including Colorado, New Mexico, and Connecticut, and even the city of New York, are looking at laws that would essentially create state-level causes of action that would allow plaintiffs to sue police officers in state courts thereby skirting the federal qualified immunity protections. Does that seem like something which could break through some of the gridlock on this issue?
1: Yeah, I think, Well, I think it could have a, a lot of positive downstream effects. It, it, it may ultimately have an impact on what Congress thinks is politically feasible. It may also provide evidence that doing away with qualified immunity um, is not going to lead to the parade of horribles that some of the defenders of the doctrine uh, predict. It also really, you know, in the end, fundamentally undermines the narrative behind qualified immunity, when, when you look at why the Supreme Court says we need qualified immunity, what they say is we need it to make sure that officers aren't going to be exposed to liability so that police departments can hire um, officers without those officers fearful of being sued and, and being subjected to this 2020 hindsight. Well, those are all justifications that really is for a state to make on its own. And so if a state decides, we don't think our officers need that because we're going to indemnify them and we're going to provide other ways that they don't need to worry, uh, even as we're trying to incentivize them to engage in, in good constitutional policing. If the states decide on their own that. They don't think qualified immunity is the right balance. Well, that undermines the entire narrative that the Supreme Court has constructed for the immunity doctrine. So I think it has lots of potential downstream effects. I think it gives courts the ability to announce the law now, and so that can help develop the constitutional law. So even if, um, so we'll we'll get more clearly established law even in jurisdictions that haven't adopted these kinds of um, statutory changes. So I think there's great potential there.
0: Alex Reinert is a professor at the Cardozo School of Law in New York City. Alex, thanks again for taking the time to talk to me.
1: Thanks. It was great to speak with you.
0: Critics of Qualified Immunity often point out that it is entirely possible and quite common for courts to hold that government agents did violate someone's rights but that the victim has no legal remedy simply because that precise sort of misconduct hadn't occurred in past cases. So, for instance, if a police officer shoots an unarmed person who happened to walk by a window rather than through a door, and it's only been established that shooting an unarmed person walking through a door is a constitutional violation, the window shooting can be granted qualified immunity. Joining me to discuss how it came to be that these narrow legal distinctions became necessary is Clark Neely. He's a senior vice president for criminal justice at the Cato Institute. So Clark, was qualified immunity designed to work this way? Or is this a case of the implementation being different than what the Supreme Court had initially intended back in 1982?
3: I think a little both. I mean, I think the Supreme Court had then and still has a completely unrealistic understanding of how police work, how the interactions between police and citizens often unfold in the field. Um, Just to take one example, the Supreme Court actually believed that uh, damages awards against police officers usually come out of the the individual officer's pocket. We know that's completely false, um, has no basis in fact, but that actually um, constituted a significant part of the court's rationale uh, for, for inventing qualified immunity out of whole cloth was this completely fictitious concern that uh, individual officers would routinely face financial ruin uh, by having to pay the damages of their own conduct. And of course, what we know now is that they almost never pay the damages associated with their own misconduct. Um, Usually that's us, the taxpayers, who pick that up by way of indemnity.
0: Clark, if I understand your point correctly, one of your primary criticisms of qualified immunity is that it basically circumvents longstanding protections of civil rights. So can you just take me back to the beginning here on this kind of textualist opposition to qualified immunity?
3: In the wake of the Civil War and the sort of onset of Jim Crow, Congress looked at what was going on in the country, particularly in the South, and what it saw correctly, it accurately perceived that rights violations were rampant, and that local governments were not only not protecting individual rights, but were sometimes they were complicit in the violation of individual rights. So what Congress did... In 1871, in enacting what was then called the Enforcement Act, we now refer to it as Section 1983, was it very simply provided that state officials, that means anybody who's employed by a state or local government, shall be liable to the person injured for the deprivation of any right. That's the language and the policy that Congress chose when it comes to official government officials violating people's rights. The problem, the basic problem with qualified immunity is that it represents a contending policy choice by a branch, the judiciary, that is not supposed to be involved in developing or implementing policy. Congress is the legislature and Congress gets to decide what the policy is going to be. And they decided what the policy was going to be when they enacted what we now call Section 1983 in 1871. In effect, the US Supreme Court rewrote that federal civil rights statute in order to substantially narrow the circumstances in which you can hold a rights-violating government official liable for their misconduct. That was a naked act of judicial policymaking, which makes it illegitimate. Uh, just as a, you know, sort of a textualist and originalist matter. And it also represents a disastrously bad policy, which is to take off the hook rights violating government officials and give them a sense of confidence that pretty much no matter how bad their misconduct is, unless they are, there's just this happenstance that that some other government official has done the exact same thing to somebody else in the same jurisdiction, they can be pretty confident that they'll get off scot-free, as they usually do.
0: One of the primary defenses of qualified immunity put out by police and law enforcement groups is that police work is a very difficult job, often requiring officers to make split second decisions. And they claim that without qualified immunity, officers could be held liable for good faith actions. Do you have any sympathy for that viewpoint?
3: Not much. I have two responses to it. Um, first, look, uh, my, do- my sister's a doctor. She's an OBGYN, and I used to do medical malpractice defense work. My father was a NASA engineer and an aerospace uh, engineer. And you know who else has a tough job that requires split-second decisions? Doctors and pilots and lots of other professionals. Uh, and we don't extend qualified immunity you know, to to doctors, even though they have to make very difficult, sometimes life or death decisions under conditions of uncertainty and risk. Uh, and we don't do it with pilots. So I think there's a bit of special pleading uh, going on here. Um, not for nothing, but I mean, police work can be dangerous, but it's not even in the top 10, 15 most dangerous professions in America. It's, it's down around 14 or 15. So I think it's a bit overblown. Second, even when they are facing, when police are facing difficult and potentially dangerous situations, the, um, the, the leeway that they claim to be looking for with qualified immunity is actually already built into the system. Uh, because you look at the, the relevant constitutional provisions, including particularly the Fourth Amendment, which prohibits unreasonable uh, seizure, unreasonable force, unreasonable searches, That word unreasonable is really important here because the officer is not liable unless his or her behavior was unreasonable. There's a lot of room to work in there and if they can go in front of a court, specifically go in front of a jury and explain why they made the decision that they did, and convince a jury that look you know you might have done it differently if we all had 2020 hindsight um i might have wished i had done it differently but this is what i was looking at this is what i was feeling and seeing in the moment um juries tend to be very sympathetic even today very sympathetic with police officers who really do try to get it right under difficult conditions um and so qualified immunity is really not playing the role that we're told that it does which is providing the leeway that we've been discussing its true function in our system is simply to 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 uh, get otherwise meritorious cases tossed out. Clark, you've said that the current
0: Republican compromise offering to shift liability from officers to police departments doesn't really change anything and also leaves taxpayers footing the bill for bad policing. So in your opinion, is any policy that preserves qualified immunity basically a non-starter for you?
3: I think that's the right place to start. So what we should do is we should go back to the policy that Congress chose 150 years ago, which is that um, uh, if you are a, a government official who violates somebody's rights, then you are liable to that person. If it turns out that this produces really significant problems of some kind, then the legislature should respond to specific incidents and specific problems with with narrowly focused, you know, maybe exceptions or, you know, statutory uh, changes that will in a very narrow way address whatever those problems are, as opposed to having the courts just speculate about problems that don't even exist, like officers facing financial ruin uh, for the decisions they make in the field. Leave it to the legislature, let them fine tune it, but we should start with the same baseline that Congress actually chose 150 years ago, which is that if you are a government official and you violate somebody's rights, you're liable to that person. Um, I think the idea that that's going to prove hugely problematic is totally overblown. But if it turns out, again, that there are genuine problems with that, then the legislature can can address them.
0: But not everyone holds Neely's skepticism of current compromise discussions. Anya Bidwell is an attorney with the Institute for Justice. Even though making police departments liable for civil rights violations wouldn't really change who's on the hook to pay those judgments, she says there could be some benefits in removing individual officers as the target of civil suits.
2: It is true that, that when it comes to uh, suits against police officers, most of them already get indemnified, right, if there is a judgment. So municipality ends up paying one way or the other. What this Team Scott approach would do essentially would say that instead of suing an officer, you would sue municipality directly, right? And you would basically say your officer was the one that violated this person's constitutional right. So it is up to you to pay this judgment. Um, And by doing that, you no longer run into the problem of qualified immunity, right? Because qualified immunity does not shield municipalities. So it's a way to essentially circumvent qualified immunity without specifically saying that officers are not entitled to that protection, right? So qualified immunity would still technically operate against the officers, but you're going to leave that part alone and you're going to go from the other end and you're going to sue the municipality. And with municipalities, qualified immunity is not an obstacle,
0: In addition to circumventing the barriers imposed by qualified immunity, Bidwell says there are a number of other benefits that could come out of making municipalities liable in civil cases.
2: For example, uh, it would incentivize municipalities to train better and to hire better. So it would kind of uh, minimize a chance of a constitutional violation on the front end. And that's a good thing. Uh, I would... Imagine that the municipality would want something in return, right? For example, right now it is very hard to fire a police officer. Uh, So it could very well be that one potential additional thing that should be included in a bill like that is that if a municipality, if it determined that the officer violated the constitutional law, right, and the municipality pays the judgment, then the municipality gets to terminate the contract, uh, which is right now very hard to do. For a way to, you know, depoliticize it, I guess, uh, Then approaching it from the municipal liability and could be a fruitful avenue, right? Uh, and at the end of the day, what's the most important thing here is that an individual whose rights were violated would be compensated for the violation of the right. That's what's the most important. Whether you sue the municipality or the officer, the end goal here is to ensure that individuals who are hurt by government officials are not the ones who left with carrying the burden of constitutional violation that they actually get compensated one way or the other
0: and that's where we're going to leave the discussion for today uncommon law was produced by myself Adam Allington along with Marissa Horn Josh Black is the executive producer of Bloomberg Industry Group podcasts For listeners, this is the last episode in our series on the Derek Chauvin murder trial and issues of police reform in the courts. Stay tuned for our next season, which should be coming out next month, where we'll look at the legal issues surrounding social media, free speech, and online disinformation in the post-Trump era. Thanks again for listening.